0: Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. Nice to have you with us. You're about to listen to episode six of Trailblazers, and we very much hope that you've enjoyed the the stellar cast that we've had so far. Had some great people, haven't we, actually? It's been,
1: it's been amazing. So this time, it's Danny Rampling. Yeah, certainly uh, somebody who's been very significant in my personal journey in music. He's the guy that... Uh, kind of played a really significant uh, part in breaking the, the first hit record that I ever signed. So I uh, got a lot of love for Danny Rampling. And uh, in this, in, in what we've got here, it's, it's really a taster of the, the great music that was significant to Danny on his journey. But if you want to listen to the tracks in full and, and I, I would recommend that, head over to Deezer.com. They're there. And there's also special Trailblazers playlists from us and our guests that you can check out.
0: Yeah, some great stories coming up from a a real DJ, a proper superstar DJ legend, arguably one of the very first. So uh, let's begin. Deezer Originals
2: Trailblazers, Danny Rampling
0: Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL and Positiva Records founder Nick Hawkes. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter is founding father of modern dance music and DJ culture, one who truly blazed... The trail that thousands of other DJs and producers have followed. He's conquered clubs, radio, TV, film, and you can still see his armpits in clubs from Ibiza to India. <laughs> Do, wow. did, did you like that? <laughs> wow! What an accolade! What an intro, Eddie. Yeah. Danny, Danny Rampling, welcome to Trailblazers. So lovely to <laughs> lovely to see you again.
1: It's the best one yet, man. <laughs>
3: it's good to see you too, Eddie so, and Nick.
0: So as I uh, as I light the fire, I'll hand over to nick as ever to uh, fire the first question at you okay great so brilliant to have you
1: along danny uh, uh great that, that you could come to join us pleasure to be here lovely lovely so what have you been up to of late I, I sort of keep a little bit of an eye on your movements on social media and it all seems very glamorous you seem to be clocking up the air miles
3: fortunately it is very glamorous yeah it's yeah, blessed yeah. to be still traveling the world yeah. just uh, uh back in the UK uh, a couple of weeks ago from a very successful Australian tour and wow. uh, and Asia in, into Thailand and um, they liked it so much in Australia I'm going back there at Easter for more dates so um, wow. yeah.
0: So should we rewind rewind the clock and 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 find out like this just yeah. rewind the whole thing. Let's like, where do that. did it where did it all start for you? Like sure. when, when was the what was the first record that you had an emotional response to that you can remember?
3: I think well, my you know my my love for music and well and radio for that matter began um around my mother and my family at a young age, you know, from a very young age. There was always music played in the house. My mother would listen to the radio uh, uh, radio 1 uh, uh at the time and um and that was my introduction to music. And I was fascinated how music was played on a record player. um My grandmother had this uh, this huge cabinet record player and you could yeah. put the records and store them in there and the speakers were in the front and there was a deck on it and I was obsessed with that at a very young age and mm-hmm. they always used to have um, family parties, at, you know, kind of whether it was a christening or a Christmas party or a birthday party, all the family would get together and dance and play music and then I think I may have been about seven or eight years old and my ta- my, my, my job was to put the records on and, and they used to love the fact that I was <laughs> enthusiastic, enthusiastic towards that job while they were, you know, drinking and being merry and having a great old knees up as such in the house, and, and, and it introduced me to playing music. Um, and, you know, Carl Cox has said the same thing. Uh, that's how he uh, became, you know, fascinated and obsessed by playing records. Mm-hmm. And um, those records were really heavy. They were they were 78s. They were like acetates. They were really heavy records. And um, one of those records was Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire. So much energy in this piece of music.
2: Trailblaze. This is Danny Rampling. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much your love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a
3: thrill. Goodness and grace is great ball of fire. I'll let you love, but I thought it was funny. You came along and you knew me, honey. I've
2: changed my mind. This world is funny.
0: Jerry Lewis, my God, they made them short and sweet. They um, did. You it, must have be a, a, a very
1: attentive seven-year-old changing their records because literally <laughs> everything lasts about a minute and fifty-eight. Yeah, exactly. yeah
0: you had to be, uh, you know, really on your game. Yeah, exactly on your game. So, were you, <laughs> so back to that time. Think back to it. Were you just literally this small fleshy jukebox that you just put on records, or were you were you providing any chat or any performance? No, no, there? no.
3: Quick hand, Dan. I was called. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just used to take the records out, and then um, uh, family would say, Well, play this one and play that one, and they would encourage me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And where was this geographically? Where were you at this? Um, In South London, in SW16, in Streatham. Oh, in Streatham? Okay, (laughs) so you're a South London. That's where I was
0: born, yeah. Oh excellent. Yeah. Um and so so after your your um your initial foray into DJ yeah. at such a at such a young age. Yeah. What was then can you pinpoint a record that um that you first that, that that really sort of reached into you in in a more emotional way rather than just sort of, you know, being a human jukebox?
3: Yeah, because, uh, you know, as a kid, Top of the Pops was our point of music and used Mm. to watch it religiously. And then all of a sudden, these pop stars burst on the scene, namely Mark Bolan and Bowie. And it was like, Mm. wow. And, you know, there was all these glam rock artists, Slade, Sweet, Glitter Band. Yeah. uh, Just a wave of this, like, colourful, like... Something, you know, something very different uh, had emerged. And, you know, as a kid, it was like then the fashion that went with it. You know, there was all this sparkly fashion and kind of like high heel platform boots with like.
1: Were you you rocking that look?
3: (laughs) I didn't have the money to rock that look at the time. (laughs) Yeah, I was a kid. I was, I don't know, 10, 11, I suppose. But I wanted
1: to rock that look, yeah. I I actually, I'll tell you something about rocking that look. I remember that look was big when I was a kid too. And uh, I wanted a pair of platform Form shoes right, and like my dad is like. <laughs> God, I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm, no son of mine's going to have plans Anyway, my mum sort of, we went out shopping and whatever, and she was like, oh, you know, all right, and got me a pair of, you know, um, of shoes that did have like really big sort of heels Heals and stuff on, yeah. like that. And I couldn't walk in the fucking
2: thing. So I was I literally
1: bought them, and I was like teetering and whatever. It was like, oh my God, this is a disaster. And in the end, my mum's like, this is, this is not working out. I like, no, no. Whatever, and then we and so we kept that a secret from my dad, you know, for for all his days. And he's gone now, he's passed away, but he never knew that we actually went down that, down that route. You know, it he wouldn't re- have been happy. He wouldn't have been happy. So we just remained something between me and my yeah. mum. You know, that
0: I, I never went down that road myself. I was no. always I was always beaten up by people who were wearing
2: those. Shivers. Oh, okay. <laughs> ch- right.
0: Chased chased around Hereford, being called all sorts of horrible
3: racist well, names by people in those shoes. Well, normally in London, it was people who wore those shoes that got, got a for looking different, particularly <laughs> yeah. the kind of Gary Glitter boots, the kind of big sparkly, kind of the sweet uh, used to wear them, and Bowie, and, mm. and they used to sell them in Carnaby Street, and they, and they had big stars on, and they were covered in glitter, and I saw them, and they were way beyond my budget, but I just used to drool at them in the window. I never got a pair, but no. I, I spent all my money on music as yeah. a kid. I, you know It started at a young age. Mm. I used to be given record tokens as presents, and gifts at birthdays and Christmas and that would all be spent on... Going to the local record store and yeah. buying vinyl, seven-inch seven inch singles. singles, singles. Guess, yeah. yeah, so
0: you were basically you were sort of collating at that time a sort of a glam rock archive of,
3: of exactly five yeah. singles. Well, that that was the sound for most yeah. kids at that time. It was and, a, and a, and a new revolution, really. And yeah. I think you know, ten year, eleven years old, seeing this burst on, you know, these characters burst onto the TV screen was very influential. And particularly one character, Mark Bolan. Mm. Uh, you know, that yeah, uh, you know, I had posters of all these artists on my bedroom wall and it was like I want to be a pop star like them, like most mm-hmm. kids did. Either mm-hmm. an astronaut or a pop star. I ended up yeah. being a DJ, which is even better.
2: <laughs> Trailblazers. Trailblazers trail, 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 trail.
1: T Rex, Telegram, Sam from a, from an era where, which of course was so different, because in terms of being of absorbing music, I mean, you touched on it. You, there wasn't much choice, was there? It was like Top of the Pops, the radio. Everybody watched that. You know, there was Radio One. Was, where else in that era were you? Well, youth clubs, no, yeah. Youth yeah. clubs. That was that was about it, or junior discos. Yeah, yeah. No internet, <laughs> or you know. Very different times, very different times. So, so then, what? Wh- then tell us a bit more. Like when you became, you know, you moved into your teens and you and you were uh, sort of growing up. Wh- wh- how did things sort of change there? Did you engage a lot more with with uh, with music and DJing and all of that? Were
3: you? Did you become the guy who was playing the tunes at the youth club? I wasn't DJing then. No, I was just an avid record collector and a lover of right. music, and uh, used to you know uh, go out and try and get into clubs at, like, 14 years old and often get refused entry to a club. But it would yeah. always be a game of one time you'd get in, then... Ten times you wouldn't, so... Were
1: you memorising sort of fake uh, dates of birth and things? I remember doing <laughs> well, a bit absolutely. of absolutely. I looked
3: about eight. Alright, <laughs> oh, <So> most <laughs> so 14, I looked about eight years most old. The time, <laughs> do, you,
1: do you remember the time that you first actually blagged your way into a club and you actually got in and you're like, yeah. Oh, my God, I'm actually got through the doors? Yeah,
3: it was at the Crystal Palace Hotel, which right. was a... a, a Oh, a grown-ups club. Yeah. And um, I got in there, I think I was about 14 at the time, and one night I got in and I, I was hooked. It was like, wow, yes. I want to come here every week. But yeah. I didn't get in there after that for <sighs> a while because I think someone had blown my cover and told right. them I was like not old enough to be in there. I uh, went back there the no. next week, it was like, sorry, you're not coming in, you'll have to come back when you're old enough. Come back in three years' time. Or <laughs> yeah, I had a few more goes at it, but uh, the door was closed for uh. a couple of years. But um, yeah, I you know, through my teens, ca- um, collecting music and um, you know being influenced by you know kind of music as a whole and fashion, mm. um, and I wanted to be a DJ, but just didn't know how how to get in there and do it. And there was a a, you know, a friend who lived down the road, um, a guy called Tony Cox, and um, we were about fourteen, I think, at the time, and he got a he got uh, the whole console, the flashing lights, and the two decks. Yeah. And, and it was wow, wow! You've made it. You're now a DJ, and I was mm. quite influenced by him as well. And I thought well, I'd love to do that, but mm. didn't know how to do it. I was mm. I was a lot sh- lot more shy at the time, and he got he got this uh, um, contract in a local working um, man's club, and yeah. he became a DJ, and then he went off and worked on the QE2, and um, we're still friends to this day. But he was very influential as well, and I thought, uh. well, you know, he's gone off and done that, and I just really, I, I I had the motivation, but I had a bit of fear surrounding it. Yes. It wasn't until later on that I became a DJ, but, um, yeah, it was just collecting music and going out to, you know, to parties and clubs and, and enjoying music, and yeah. then, um About 15 and a half, I left school and came to work um, in the city as an apprentice carpenter, and I hated every minute of it. And, um, you know, I thought I'd like it, and I got to work on this job, and it wasn't for me, and it was, uh, you know, I needed to be in music. And then punk came along, and that was it. It was a big turning point. Okay. At
0: at any point during these years, where where you were obviously such a lover of music and you were avidly, vigorously collecting and consuming it, was there any point at which you thought... I want to do this like because you, you're very musical so w- was there any time where you, where you f- formed a band or wanted to play an instrument or anything like
3: that well I used to as I said I used to listen to the radio all the time and, and um, when I was kind of 12, 13 I'd be listening to Luxembourg and you know when I should have been sleeping for school and you know um, Tony Prince he was one of the DJs on there the Royal Ruler uh, yeah, um, oh, yeah who created <laughs> Mick and DMC DMC that's right yeah. yeah DMC Tony so I used to listen to his, his shows and stuff and the other DJ shows and just have this romantic vision of like being out somewhere far and you know Radio Luxembourg wasn't actually on the ocean, I don't think. That was Radio no. Caroline. No. But I had it in my head that it was a, a, you know, a ship in, out in the Channel or the North Sea mm. and you'd be living on the ship, so it was an adventure. So I used to have that, that vision in my head. And, um, yeah, I wanted to be a DJ, a radio DJ for me, I know. Not not, not, a, not in a band. It was all about... That came later. The, when rock. punk arrived, that was it. It was like, you know... Uh-huh. Um, Try to tune in a guitar and drop out. Basically, not tune in, drop out. It was like <laughs> tune out a guitar and drop out. So, <laughs> so went to work and saw this like slogan on the wall. You know, um, God save the Queen and anarchy in the UK. And that was around the release of, you know, just the past uh, this uh, uh, estate in Brixton, the S- uh, Stockwell Park Estate, on the bus going to work. And there was all this like punk graffiti on the wall, and it was just emer- it, the whole thing was like blowing up. Then It'd been, it been already started in '76, but it like um, kind of... Did, did you become a punk yourself? I did, then? yeah, yeah. Right, I did. You had, so, uh, did, did, you, did you? Did you, did
0: you what do, do what I did? You? <laughs> did you do what I did, which was, I asked guys to remember this, I was just going back to me, I got, I took my flare jeans and I took them to my mum and I asked her to cut a massive triangle out of the bottom of them and then stitched them together to make them into drain pipe. <laughs> 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 oh, brilliant. Couldn't afford, I couldn't afford to go, you know, down the Great Gear Market in Kings Road and buy a pair of proper, like, you know, no. drain It's packages, yeah. I, I remember my mum going, "You want me to do what? What? <laughs> what? You want me to?" Because everybody was wearing flares. Everybody was wearing flares, and and so and you know when I when I did that, it was like. Really? You want to wear straight trousers? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? <laughs>
3: well, your mum supported you. Yeah. Bless you. Bless you, mum. So,
1: you were, yeah, you were, you were a punk.
3: I certainly was, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. I think, you know, kind of like punk was really like a, a, an exciting movement and. I think it, it it changed so many people. As we were just talking, it was real DIY culture. It was like you know, totally. get up, form a band, and like drop out of your co- yeah. you know your crap jobs. It's like, yeah. and that's what people did. and I did the same thing. I walked into a, uh, a the um, at the college where I was. I got there ten minutes late. the uh, the, um, the instructor said, "You're ten minutes late. I'm reporting you to your company." I said, "Well, you go ahead and do that. See you later." <laughs> and I walked out, and that yeah. was the end of my job with them. And um, yeah, I, I I learned to play bass guitar Well, badly mm-hmm. learned play bass guitar and, and formed a band called The Prime Suspects but I think we were better at our marketing than actually kind of getting gigs and we didn't actually play a gig we just like used to rehearse all the time okay. but we pl- plastered the whole of the London underground in these yellow stickers that were you know we spent hours handwriting them up and plastered them and people were like who are the Prime Suspects it was we've, a band that never played yeah. <laughs> we've never seen them we've
1: got to <laughs> see the Prime Suspects and you've been building demand ever since so exactly first so, uh, through you if know the biggest wind-up <laughs> campaign ever.
0: Yeah. Well, this is very interesting because there's obviously a, a, a very clear um, similarity culturally between punk and acid house, really, in terms of so, yeah. of the DIY, of of it being very exclusive and un. Unattainable for most normal people. Very you know, much you, so. You had to have a studio. You had to, you know, get demo time from a major record label yeah. in order to get into a proper studio to yeah. record anything. And, and punk suddenly, and, he, and it was all sort of session musicians and and, and long hair and platforms and all that. And Proc then rock. suddenly, exactly. <laughs> and then and then suddenly, it was like
3: dynamite on on a, on a dam. Wasn't exactly. It? Yeah, people were forming bands and getting opportunities that they. Previously, could have only dreamed about, mm. and that just—you uh, know—the whole scene exploded, and this whole wave of new bands came out, and there were gigs every night in London. You know, you'd go to like Did the Roundhouse, the Marquee, some of the Cried and Greyhound. Did you see some of the key... Well, the go- the adverts, the Clash, yeah. um, uh, yeah, uh, the, the Damned. Right. Um, even the Jam were on the scene at, at that punk yeah. time as well. Yeah. But all of those, uh, Generation X, Billy yeah. Idol, yeah, yeah, X-Ray yeah. Specs, you know, all those bands. Uh, yeah. when, I went thing. and saw and Adam yeah. and the Ants at the marquee. That was always a popular one because there'd be a lot of stage diving there. Hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> all those concerts, yeah, you know, kind of in the you know, that formative years of live music and going out to gigs, because I hadn't really been to concerts uh, like that, you know, in no. the live band circuit, up until punk. And, and that then was you a- were
1: just in- immersed in a wave of
3: of <laughs> gigs and An energy. And as, as as many kids were. It was, you know, it was a very exciting movement at the time. Uh, you know, the whole anarchy thing, it was like, you know... It, basically, it was like, you know, just drop out and do what you want. Uh, you know, kind of, but... Uh, It was, you know, and and that was inspiring to people. It was like, okay, well, let's do what we want and let's, like, live the life we want and that's what people did and that's why all these great bands emerged and, you know, the fashion and the scene that surrounded it and very similar to Acid House some years later. Well, well, th- I, did you ever catch the Sex Pistols? No, then, I at didn't. Th- at that no, time? no, I didn't uh, catch the Sex Pistols. Unfortunately, I just missed that kind of first wave of punk. Mm. Used to read about it in Sounds and yeah. uh, NME, but um, unfortunately missed those uh, Sex Pistols gigs. I mean, that must have been amazing mm. to have gone to them. It's like the early acid house clubs. You know, everyone claims to have gone to one of those acid house <laughs> clubs, but <laughs> the reality of it was there was only like three hundred people in the club I pr- uh, created, co-created with Zoom, <laughs> and you know the same for like Future with Paul Oganville, three hundred. People at the time, the early clubs. So, yeah. you know, it's the same thing. But <laughs> yeah, would have loved to have seen the Pistols. I saw them some years later, in um, their their uh, reforming that when they reformed for that tour, I think it was, like ten oh, the, years f- ago, the Filthy Lucentor Park, was <laughs> yeah, 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 Iggy Pop. Yeah, yeah. It
2: was yeah a good gig. Right.
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, what a sh- what a shame that you um that you missed them right at right at the beginning. But loved this. their but, music, but, you know. But you were exactly consuming yeah. their music, so. Yeah. So should we play? Uh, should we play something from the Duke ju- to take you back to the jubilee? Take us all back to the jubilee year. There you go.
3: God save the queen.
2: Trailblazers. Danny Rampling. God save the queen. The fascist
0: X Pistols and God Save the Queen to take uh, to take us back to the jubilee year um, thanks to Danny Rampling our our trailblazer so Danny you've um you've you've cataloged you've soundtracked your life up to this point with by referencing a lot of uh, of rock music of glam rock and and um, of uh, of punk rock so where did I mean, dance music wasn't really a thing back then, but there was a sort of a divide betwi culturally between kind of you've got mods and rockers and 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 you've got um like soul boys and funk people and you know th- kind of those guys, like yeah. so where when did that world? Because that world is obviously much closer to the world that you're famous for. So, so when did you kind of dovetail with with
3: soul music or dance music culturally then? Um I think you know um the roots to dance music Tamla Motown um the first Motown record I bought was Stone Love by the Supremes, which I loved dearly, and that was my influence to the soul sound, and then on from that um going ice skating at like thirteen to fifteen years old. And there'd always be disco music played at the ice rink, and um, there'd be a speed skating session. Everyone who could uh, skate fast would leave the ice, and then the uh, show-off speed skaters would, would go round the ice rink. Yeah, that's
0: hard. On. Why was, it? Well, it, was mu- it? It was always dance music, actually thinking about uh, it was always dance music in ice skating rinks, never rock music,
3: right? Exactly, yeah. 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 It, it, was, it was disco and, and, and funk and stuff, yeah. Um, I, I don't remember much rock music being played there was a bit of rock and roll um, the Sidewinder used to be played, but there wasn't any kind of like heavy no. rock or rock. I wonder that why was that played. Do
0: you think that there was like a, one really influential DJ that was playing you in all of these places that was playing in these ice? That, that, <laughs> that there might there might be an unknown DJ from an ice skating ring that that you know is very likely. Influ- That's that, that, yeah, you all, and others. There's some kind of awful gag about dance music being
1: cooler and off yeah. <laughs> oh, like I said, it is an awful gag, which is why I'm not You're gonna, above that. I'm not going to go down that route
3: but i guess one one piece of music that sticks out from that time and particularly the disco influence the sound of philadelphia mfsb Mm -hmm. um that reminds me of those days and i think that kind of opened my ears a lot more to the disco sound as well and that was one of the first influential records that i can remember from my teenage years skating and listening to this piece of music and did it and did it make you um because the 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 glam
0: rock and the punk rock and stuff very much sort of empowered you and inspired you. Absolutely. Did this, did this do, do the same thing? I mean, did you... H- how did it make you feel at the time when you when you kind of engaged with this kind of music?
3: Um, I think, you know, that, that that kind of music was more about chasing girls. Yeah, <laughs> of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, did you... Uh, and did, w- 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 did Perfect you point...
3: flirting and, like, you know, kind of drooling over certain girls and falling in love with them and then not actually getting in love with them or actually getting a date with them well, let's let's, <laughs> let's rewind you back to that uh, to that uh,
0: that terrible moment in your life
2: trailblazers <laughs>
0: Sounds of Philadelphia by MFSB. Um, so, now forgive my ignorance. Would you call? Would this be called soul music or
3: rare groove or what? Would you? What? Would, what how would you categorize it? What, what category in the record shop would you find this record? Is there a category for it? It, it comes under the rare groove banner. It comes under soul music. It comes yeah. under disco.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so here's you. In, this is the mid, mid, this is sort of mid seventies now. And yeah, and and this is a, a palpably more four four disco beat that has that has entered your life. But of course, you were you were still, you know, inspired by the glam rock and really into your punk rock, and you were really into your rock music. But now you were getting into dance music as well, and so you. you and in those days, the culture was very separate, wasn't it? Like the, the, you were a punk or you were a, a soul boy. So kind of, you, you must have felt a bit confused. Or you was a rocker. Or, you, or, yeah, exactly. Or you were exactly, you're, you're a metal or a rocker, yeah. you know, your leather jacket. So, so like, where were you culturally at that point then? Were but you still, a, you, were, you were you a punk that just liked soul music? Well,
3: no, no, there was a lot of people that liked disco and soul music that used to, you know, go to the, the Lacey and the Lacey Lady and uh, Crackers and all these clubs and, um... And punk arrived and, you know, bands like The Clash were a fusion, really, of kind of, you know, um, reggae and disco. um, And there was this kind of, uh, I think that the the kind of part of the tribes merged, you know, there was like a a lot of people that were into disco and funk music who got into punk. And love the energy of punk. And that's what, you know, really happened. And then that also happened years later with Acid House. You had the whole rare groove scene that was, you know, a continuation of those days that there was this whole crowd that, you know, went to the soul weekenders and the warehouse parties and shaking finger pop and everything else that was going on at the time. And, and then. Acid House came along, and then there was like you know this shift from that uh group of people that enjoyed that music into the acid house scene mm. and you know uh, and then the whole thing merged again, and that it was like history repeating itself, but yeah, as I said, you know the four four beat Tamla Motown was my early uh in, um, <clears throat> introduction to that, and then through those those days of like you know going to the youth club, going skating and what have you, and being at friends' parties and house parties and Disco was often the soundtrack, disco and and those funky records.
0: Mm. Yeah, thinking back to that time, you had sort of musical agitators like Don Letts who were introducing punks to reggae exactly and, yeah and, and you, yeah. you have the djs that some of the, that you've mentioned that were kind of um blurring the lines between the tribes which is a very it's a very modern thing but that's kind of where it happened where it started happening wasn't it so um so what was uh is there a record that you can pinpoint um at at that time so during the punk time that was a dance a pure dance music record that that really
3: you know that Absolutely, because, um, you know, buying seven-inch singles for many years, and then it was the introduction around, um, well, from my own experience, around 76, 77 of the 12-inch single, yeah. the extended dance single. Yes. that yeah, was high on the wow factor, you know, after years of buying sevens, and then 12 inches had arrived, it was like, wow, you know, 99p for, like, a 12-inch record with, like, a seven ten ten-minute Epic mix on it. Yes. And um, one of those tracks was um, on TK Records, T Connection, um, Do What You Want to Do. And that was also a a soundtrack in a club that I used to go to. And um, being, you know, kind of uh, in awe of the DJ that was in there playing all these American imports. And that was one, I think that was probably the first American, one of the first American imports that I bought uh, is this track
2: Trailblazers. Yeah, yeah. Do what you want.
1: want to hear more of the music don't forget you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to deezer.com where you'll also find special trailblazers playlists deezer originals
2: trailblazers
1: so t connection do what you want to do um so I'm, I'm interested in how you would access dance music at uh then uh, in in this point or over the next sort of few years i'm you, you said that you bought this as a this record as a import twelve inch. Were you hitting the the specialist stores, Groove Records or yeah, City Sounds, um, whatever it might have been,
3: Bluebird possibly? Yeah, I I think that was around seventy seven, seventy eight. I went to a record store in Croydon called Diamond Records, and that was a leading import store in London at the time, and that's yeah. where I bought the, these import. Twelve inches, and um, that's where I bought my first import album, which was Isaac Hayes' right. uh, New Horizons, brilliant album. So I used to shop there a lot, and that was kind of this like created this passion for you know that that sound and and the music that was uh, there available. Yeah. So I got into collecting that music. Punk came along, got into punk, and then you know followed the the live gig circuit for a couple of years, and then punk became more uh, more it leaned towards the mod scene and right. the jam and yeah. all of those uh, Purple Hearts and those bands and yeah. then went on that scene and uh-huh. got on the scooter scene and all of that for, like, I don't know, three or four years. And, okay. And then it was around 80, 81, I think it was. 80, yeah, about 81, start of 82. And um, and then um, um, I met Nikki Holloway shortly after, who introduced me to uh, Kiss... Kiss FM radio. Right. Yeah, I think that was around uh, 80, 83, I believe. So that would have a been a pirate back then. It was, yeah. It was one of the original London Pirates along with uh, JFM and Horizon and Solar Radio at the time. And um, Kiss um, had a lot of DJs that had worked on that sta- on those other stations. Gordon Mack created Kiss and Nicky was a friend of Gordon's. Mm. And um I'd sent Gordon in a top three on an- another station. He was on a JFM one afternoon and he liked my top three and Nicky said, oh, he's a mate of mine. So I got a show at 2 o'clock in the morning on Kiss because I had a record collection and I was collecting soul, independent soul music then, post kind of like punk mod and went into collecting like um funk and independent soul and um but you, so slushy you, stuff and, like, you know, deep soul from the south. So you were <laughs> on
1: Kiss as a pirate, but you weren't DJing in clubs, interestingly. No, I wasn't, no. Ah, Still uh, you aspiring normally to. expect it to maybe be the other way round, yeah. that you're out there DJing, and, and then you get your radio break, but for you, other the other way around, yeah. okay. but, but It
0: was the other way round, yeah. But you were living your dream, because you, that, from when you were a kid, you wanted to be a radio DJ, I right? did,
3: yeah, and then, fortunately, through Nicky's uh, uh, introduction to... Uh, and through sending in the, this selection to Gordon Mac, the station controller, the, uh, you know, the two points connected and then I was off to show because he was looking for DJs. Um, so I got a show, I think it was Tuesday night... Wednesday morning, yeah. two in the morning till four,
1: and and talk us through. <laughs> Red
3: Ice probably plot. not many people listening, but it was like you know it was a good training ground.
1: T- talk us through what's the what was the environment then of sort of mid eighties London pirate radio? Were you in a high rise block or were you in the? Back of some we were shop in,
3: um, or something? Or... We were in a, a block of flats. Well, that's one of the fir- the first shows that, uh, that came from there. I played in Wandsworth. There was right. a building in Wandsworth. But they originally started in Charlton. There was right. a few shows there because it was a high point in London. Yeah, I mean, it was very basic back then as well, you know, compared to what radio is today. And mm. it was the early foundations and a continuation of the other pirates like Caroline and Luxembourg, but continued in... You know, city in the cities of England, and uh, you know, London was leading the way, generally with the pirates alongside Manchester and Nottingham, and other places. But it, you know, here in London, first place was Charlton, then it went to Wandsworth, then right. it went to um, Warworth Road, mm-hmm. and um, in South East London. So, um, yeah, I got a, I got a break there, and I pursued that break and, and stuck with it, and. Um, and were then, you
1: concerned about getting raided and all of that as a pirate radio station at that point?
3: Oh, that was always talked about, and there were a couple of raids, but it wasn't in the middle of the night. It was always when it was like a primetime DJ on, so the middle of the night, was it was like, you know, they, they, there was no point raiding it at that time. It was to cause maximum, you know, impact on the station listenership right. and the station as a whole. So, you know, uh, the weekend DJs and the primetime DJs who were the stars of KISS, well, they, you know, there'd be the odd raid, but KISS wasn't raided a great deal, actually. Equipment was confident. Skated Uh a a few times but they never had like uh, there was a couple of other stations that were raided continually but Kiss seemed to you know kind of Bypass that some way somehow. Mm. Uh, so you know there'd be talk of it, and you know what happens if there's going to be a raid on the pirate station. We, what, what, ha- we actually all protocol? thought it was quite fun. Yeah, it was, was a cat sh- and mouse game with the authorities, and it would constantly like- <laughs> trying. They're trying to triangulate exactly. Right? Exactly. And, exactly. They, and I think they
0: they would always raid in the day for the pure and simple fact <laughs> that everybody knows that anyone anyone who works for the council stops working for the council at five o'clock. Yeah, that must be it. So,
3: yeah. so it's just working hours. They would get you in working hours, wouldn't they?
0: And and who, interesting who, experience,
3: yeah. yeah and, and that that was the introduction to radio, because I was incredibly mic-shy at the time as well. Right. But, uh, you yeah, know, it was, oh, God, God, I've got a microphone in front of me. Do I have to talk? Yes, you do have to talk. So this is what you have to do- say, you know. It's like, talk about the radio station, and, like, there's some things to read out. So, you know, kind of like at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, making mistakes. I listened back to some of the early recordings. It's, God, is that me? Yeah, that's mm. you. Do, and t- do you remember Do you remember who
1: else was on the station at the same time as you then? Um, Kiss as a... Trevor Nelson. Right,
3: right um, okay. Tim Westwood. Yes, Tim uh, came came to uh, Kiss. I think he came a little bit later, but yeah, Tim was on Kiss. Um, uh, Norman Jay. Um, right. Uh, Colin
1: Favour at Colin Favour, indeed. Yeah, Colin okay. Favour.
3: Um, uh, Bobby and Steve. Got um,
1: it. So, so it was, yeah, it was a really strong line-up of... of of, ta- of talent. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, it really was.
3: Yeah, Jonathan like- Moore from Cold Cut.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and at that point, so you you were saying, um with a little smile in your in your face, you were saying that you were playing like sort of slushy <laughs> kind of like late night cut, exactly. swing yeah, beaty yeah. soul, right? Yeah, so, the lovers'
3: selection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something for the ladies.
0: So at that point were you were you experimenting at all with mixing records or beat matching or was that kind of thing starting to you know how did that because what would what had happened in new york with cool Herc and Grandmaster yeah. flash and stuff which obviously massively affected the whole sort of hip-hop and mixing and scratching yeah. and cutting and stuff sort of when did that kind of
3: come into your life um i saw paul anderson play on a kiss gig paul Treble anderson an incredible mixer and it was like Wow you know that that is that's the way to play music that and also listening to froggy on j f m who was like known as the mm. master mixer mm. and he'd he 'd play like a the the new york master mixes but he'd you know he'd well, he wouldn't copy them, but he, you know, he, he had that, that style of mixing as like, you know, the, the New York, what the New York sound was all so about. using the records, yeah, yeah. The, the repeating, yeah. the, and long, long mixes and yeah. lots of editing that went into them. But, you know, he was, he was a master mixer. God bless his soul. But that was an influence on many of us here in London and, and Paul Trouble Anderson and Mastermind Roadshow. You know, they were all mixing up records and, uh, and that yeah, that influenced so many of us. I think you know, those, yeah, those early pioneers of of mixing tracks together.
0: Yeah, so it's such an interesting time. Is that a lot of people sort of think think back and 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 credit the the hip hop guys with the sort of. Um, the origination of kind of mixing but you mentioned DMC and Tony Prince and DMC stood for Disco Mixing Championships that's right yeah it's not not Ooh, now it's dance music club yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go so so it was it's something that ca- actually came from disco didn't it yeah that, the, the, the culture of, of
3: mixology you know of mixing well yeah disco and, and hip hop
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, the scratching and stuff came from yeah. hip hop, but it was it was such a it, it was uh, you know that sort of mixing thing, such a such a strong thing with disco.
1: So, so when did you start uh, moving into into club world and DJing in clubs? Right, so I, on the I, radio.
3: Yeah, I was on the radio uh, on the uh, late night shifts, yeah. and uh, that continued for a couple of years. And I think I, I think I got a Sunday afternoon at some stage, hmm. uh, three or four years later. And then I was playing in um, bars in Southeast London, and then I, I met Nicky Holloway. In a Ibiza around the, uh, 80, 83 and um, was, hold on formed a sec friendship. Let's just,
1: let, let's, let me just stop you on that yeah. one so was that your first visit to Ibiza was 1983
3: uh, my first visit was 81 but 81? The f- visit in 83 wow. that's where I met Nikki and we became friends and then I became
1: Was, was that the he's special, assistant
3: was that the special branch Ibiza
1: sort
3: um, of yeah, that came Hot a bit later as in, well. He, yeah, he was um, he was promoting all these parties in London, at do yeah. at the zoo, the special branch in um, uh, warehouses and in, in Southeast London, yes. and um, and then he did some Ibiza trips as well. Mm. But um, yeah, that's. So you met Nicky in Ibiza. Yeah, I did. Yeah, right. That was outside of his special branch activities. Okay. So he was a strong influence, and, mm. and he's a great friend. And he, mm. you know, he gave me an opportunity to learn about um, promoting nightclubs and and what goes into the logistics of promoting a nightclub. And he taught me a lot. Could... But you know, I didn't get a gig at his events generally, and yeah. I, I learned from you know, you know how. Ha- ha- the, the ethos of promotion yeah and um and uh, that helped me greatly when i started soon uh, in nineteen eighty
1: seven so w- were your first club gigs around that era sort of eighty seven eighty six seven ish yeah, yeah they,
3: they were I, I, the first club gig I did was with kiss at kisses in Peckham they right. used to do the sunday night uh, kiss at kisses and yeah. um, that was a regular gig for the station so yeah. uh, there was one event that we were uh, a lot of the kind of uh, lesser known DJs were invited to play early on so I was I have to say, I was absolutely nervous that night. It was yeah. the first gig in the club, yeah, and I only played I only played about uh, fifteen minutes of music. Right. We all did, but it was like it was a good good turning point. Yes. Was like yeah, okay, like, I can do like this. Like this, you know, playing in this club and you've got all these respected figures in there. and It's like, well, who's this bloke here? It's like, well, they're like the kind of like the junior DJs on the station. Got it. But Gordon was very very encouraging to to the new talent like myself and other people on the
1: station. So um, I can see, I can imagine you getting rolling on on. Sort of that front can I just ask you briefly what your experience of Ibiza was then both on that very first visit did you say 1981 for you Uh, I first went in 81 yeah with a
3: girlfriend did you go
1: clubbing Um, in Ibiza no I didn't no no, I went there
3: um, um, to a hotel and didn't see that side of the island right um, I was, uh, but did yeah. that side of the island even exist <laughs> i mean like well, yeah, I, I didn't th- know about it yeah, then it must have been bars i think, and, nah, I think it did exist yeah
1: yeah but, um, yeah. but w- when did you first
3: kind of experience ibiza club culture then i think properly um you know kind of that side of it amnesia and uh, in 87 right um i went off to america for a year in 80... When was that? The end of... Uh, it was the start of 86 into 87. I, I went to America a bit of an adventure basically and lived there for a year and um, came back and then I didn't house know was that didn't know you lived in America East Coast yeah, or, or West Coast like. where did you go I, I, I started off in LA but um, couldn't really kind of adjust to that and didn't have much money I, so, I sold a lot of my records to Trevor Nelson and Jonathan Moore <laughs> <according to laughs> and a lot of rare growth well, right okay well to raise the funds because right. it, it was very economically depressed as well in Britain in like the mid 80s yeah of course it mm, wasn't a great a... time economically nice. and you know you had the punk thing where there was no future and it was the you know, there was a continuation of that. It wasn't great. It wasn't ideal, really, and, and um, we were doing our own thing. So I went off to America and, and stayed there for about a year. And um, I went first went to LA for a, only lasted about two weeks, took the ground bus for three days nonstop across America and ended up in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and then later Key West. So ah. that was my American trip. <laughs> I was doing something similar. I was in America was
1: summer yeah. of 80... Yeah, summer of eighty-seven. I was in America. So oh, right. I was in New York, though. Yeah, and just for a few months. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah I didn't. Afford- Paradise Garage. Uh, yes, I just I visited once, just uh, a few weeks before it closed. Yeah. Yeah, but I I didn't. Uh, yeah, I was kind of. Uh, Traveled around, but generally New York based. But it was very exciting, wasn't it, to be in America? At, at oh, that very much of time. so. Yeah,
3: yeah, incredibly exciting. Ah. But unfortunately, I, I I didn't have the experience of the Paradise Garage, and yeah, you know, I was lucky. That's, that's a, the one club. I think. that yeah. I've w I think it's the only club that I would really have loved to have gone to.
1: Although I've got to, I've got to say, and when when it comes up in conversation and I to talk about it, uh, Larry LeVan was was playing uh, the night that I was he was. Pretty shit, to be honest. <laughs> it was like, you know, bit of clank a you know, and there was one point where the record got to the end, and it was like... F-
2: <laughs>
1: like this and this went on for minutes you know and people just stood on the dance floor he got away with it though didn't well, he well he got away with it I mean I think he was he was revered as you he, know he yeah. a legendary DJ and he could get away with that you know, he could maybe, I think he was old... sprawled under the decks and somebody had to rush up and sort of give him a shake and say Larry mate you know well, put another tune on but, well he was a rock and roll DJ wasn't yeah. he yeah yeah so uh, yeah, that was that was my experience of the, the Paradise Color so brilliant and th- and and then and then I so and then Ibiza Clubland. Tell us about about when you went. So Amnesia, yeah. Your first experience of Amnesia was eighty seven. Eighty
3: seven, yeah. The right. August of eighty seven. I came back from America. Um, I think it was in June of that year. Nicky did this uh, special branch thing in Greece, mm. so we went there, and you know everything was changing, and the music had changed in the course of a year. You know, house had you know, really kind of started to come in and DJs like Colin Favor and Steve Jackson and uh, Jazzy M were playing it on pirate yeah. radio and it was like fresh and exciting sound because in America, down there in Florida, it really wasn't being played. Mm. So it was like, wow, you know, this is house. You know, I'd read about it and stuff and kept kept up on music whilst away. And it was like, wow, this is like, you know, this is brilliant. And um, and we w- went to a beta to celebrate Paul Oakenfold's birthday. It was his birthday. So the four of us went with Johnny Walker, Nicky Holloway, myself, and Paul, and um, had this week there and had this, like, you know, complete revelation of on the dance floor and amnesia. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that was you know, an incredible experience coming from London warehouse parties and soul weekends into, like, this you know, a cosmopolitan melt- melting pot of hedonism and yes, open I- air and beautiful people and scallies from Europe and people on Euro Rail tickets, you know, blagging their way around Europe. Yeah, uh, you know, there was a scene English contingent. Yeah, you know, there was about twenty of them. It was a little gang of them, you know, from Sheffield and Manchester and London, and they were all pretty cool. And Nancy Noyes was part of that group, and Lisa Loud, and mm. um, they were all friends with with Oki as well. And Alfredo <laughs> inspired us greatly. Argentinian DJ playing in the open air in this little shed at the end of the dance floor, and it was just magic, pure magic. And the stage was set. It was like, well, we need to do this back in London. And one of those tracks that really stands out is uh, Kenny Jam and Jason, Can You Dance? Mm. Mm. I think this track taught a lot of people how to dance, actually.
2: Trailblazers. <laughs> Pen. 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 Pen.
0: Pen. Pen. So Kenny jamming Jason and can you dance? And this is, I presume this is this is a New York record or a Chicago, Chicago. So this is, So yeah. this is Chicago house. So at this point I presume that the Roland TB-303 was about to be invented, but hadn't actually been invented yet? Or oh, was no, no, it, no. Was, had, it, had it been invented? Were you, you, were yeah. you guys using that then?
3: Oh, it had, but, yeah. I mean, acid tracks, future acid tracks, that was, you yeah, there was quite a wave of acid tracks around this other more pumping, you know, Chicago sound as well, this house jacking sound. Yeah. So you had the 303 sound and at the same time tracks like this and... Uh, you know James Silk and um, Farley Jack Master Funk and Frankie Knuckles, that were more gospelly based and their roots in disco and. Uh Acid house 303 sound was more more had its roots in the electronic bands like Kraftwerk and Depeche yeah. Mode and those electronic bands of the 80s. So yeah. uh, that formed the basis for the, the the techno sound, the Detroit techno sound, and the Roland 303 acid sound. All of those producers were influenced by European bands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So now you
0: mentioned Paul Oakenfold. Now, obviously, in in the sort of genesis of, of British dance music culture, you meeting Paul Oakenfold—that's a big pin in the map in the sort of in in dance family <laughs> trees.
3: So, what, what? When did that happen? How did you? How did you guys meet? When did you become friends? Um, well, again, I, I I knew Paul through Nicky, and Paul used to play in um, uh, bars and clubs around London and particularly South London. And he also he used to he, he introduced uh, Def Jam to the UK. So his time was at his time at profile records and New York and uh, the whole Def Jam sou- uh, sound and tour was introduced uh, through Paul, uh, namely. Really? Into God, the I thought UK. it was Tim Westwood who did that. And that was like in the early eighties. So Paul was very influential in that as well. Yeah. So he was a bit of a face around town, and you know, kind of didn't know him that well until we went on that trip. You know, we used to. I'd talk when and he'd give me some white labels and stuff. I used to work at Rush Release, but it was that trip in '87 where I really got to know him, um, and um, that was it, really. And so, I guess
0: you, we must be very getting very close to you starting the the club. That if you had a poll, you mentioned this earlier. If you had a poll, if you, if you go on Facebook now and go, who was that Shoom originally? You'll get probably. 10,000 people who go <laughs> yeah you know I, I was there like week 1 but that you know that there was only you know 278 people yeah. in that
3: room yeah. yeah so when did that what did that start in 88 no, in 80, 87, in December 87. Gosh. We came back, uh, in Ibiza, we, we all said to each other, you know, let you know, we're going to do this back in London, and that's what we did. Uh, you know, we, did, we created our own, respectively, our own clubs. Um, I'd been working with Nicky long enough to kind of build my experience. I hadn't run clubs before, but I'd helped run them. And I thought, yeah, I'm going back, and I heard this name on the dance floor. It was like, you know, shim, 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 well, that's a name for my club, that was it. It was Trevor Fung who said that. Who's you know, another uh, uh, early Acid House DJ. He said, and- you know, shim, shim, shim. I was like, that's, that's the name I'm going to have for my club. <laughs> and and now- I came back, and we all came back, and, and, you know, things snowballed very quickly. You know, you had the Pirate Radio playing it. You had uh, uh, the Wag Club were playing it, uh, Rene Galston, mm. uh, Black Market at the Wag, and Black Market Records was one of the finest record stores for house yeah. music in London. Yeah. So, you know, there were there were parties going on, and then Colin Favor was playing at Jungle Club and Pyramid, which were mixed gay clubs with yeah. Mark Moore and mm. at Heaven. And all these new tracks were coming with, uh, you know, Mars pump up the volume, David yeah. and CJ McIntosh produced that, Tim Simon Bond the bass, and, and Mark Moore's S Express. So yeah. there's this whole wave of British stuff coming through as well. And the whole thing just it, exploded, it just, really. It, it just came together so quickly. Mm. You know, this whole, whole. Huge wave of, like, this new sound and this new movement had gone from, like, a few people in clubs to, like, thousands within months. Yeah, I remember going to heaven. Hundreds of thousands.
0: I remember going to heaven back in those days, on on the one day a week. It was either a Wednesday or a Thursday. I think it was called Asylum. Yeah. And it was the only time when they let us breeders in. (laughs) 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 They would let straight people into this really (laughs) iconic gay club. So, Shum, was that... You, was that in Vauxhall that you started? No, it was that? in
3: um, it was in Southwark Street, um, uh, close to Southwark Bridge. Um, we opened that in a gym. I'd played there at an engagement party um, around 80, uh, 83, I believe, eighty four, hmm. and said this would be a great place. for one day, when I when I actually do have a club and a crowd, this is where I'm going to do this uh, this club. Uh, this is where I'm going to hold the night for this club. That was my dream, was to have, a, a, you know, just to be playing music to a crowd of people that appreciated it and having that core crowd. And, you know, I'll always say it, that's worth, uh, to me, you know, worth more than anything money could buy because I had fulfilled my dream and my ambitions to...
1: I've got to ask you did you know though that it was that it was going to be successful and packed and all that or were you nervous opening up the club thinking you know what I hope you know
3: people show up and absolutely because you know the first night um, I did it in conjunction with the Rare Groove DJ and he had his crowd right and a few of the people I'd met in Ibiza and through these other places in London we were going to they came along so there was only about 100 people there the first night and there was a great divide in the music and the crowd he played Rare Groove I came on and Attempted, you know, to play house to a crowd that were not really into house. Part Mm. of the crowd was. So it was a bit of a divide. Mm. And that was November uh, 87, December the 5th of 1987. So that was reviewed. And then with my uh, wife at the time, Jenny, then went on and restructured things. And uh, it was 88, it really came together. And that's when it really, really boomed. but, you know, kind of in the space of like, you know, two parties, three parties, Cole Cox played on the second party and put his sound system in there. And then I invited Colin Favor, who was a hero of mine, and, um, to come and play as well, be, uh, leading house DJ at the time, and Just techno th- DJ. The Carl Cox thing is interesting, so, yeah, what was Carl doing? He, so he played at the second shum, did he? That's right, yeah, and, and Carl was playing at um, Paul Oakenfold's club, at Ziggy's in Streatham Right. Um, and he was the opening DJ, and he had something to do with the sound system there, and I saw him play there, and he's playing, you know, on three decks, it's like, wow, he's, like, you know, really good. Right. And got friendly with Carl and then he came along and played as well and then that was it you know the stage was set yeah and within weeks with all the clubs with the clubs that Paul did and Nicky did you know it went from a small core group of people just these seeds, to you know to this people you know queuing around the block to get in
1: that must have been amazing must have been amazing for you to turn up at the fourth fifth and see a line just all the way down the street or whatever and well, it, it was a great it was. feeling,
3: but it was like how all these how you know how all these people are going to get in here. But I didn't have anything to do with the door, so fortunately, my role was to entertain people downstairs, yeah. and make sure the party was rocking and you know kind of host with people. But yeah. so that was no easy job on the door, though. That's for sure. You know, the lines of people and a, a room that h- held three hundred, and even that was a squeeze. Um, yeah, you know, there was and a lot you of disappointed fill, people.
1: Filled it three, four times over. Well, exactly, it,
3: yeah. but that wasn't the ethos of the club. Yeah, um, and if we had to have done that at the time, I think it would have it could have fizzled out quicker than it did. We didn't go for the commercial angle on it, and it, you know, it was just it was about the music and the club itself, and it attracted more. I think it attracted a lot more attention because it was so difficult to get into for a lot of people because of the capacity, of the capacity to get into the space. So Clink Street opened up around the corner. So there'd be like this kind of like flow between the clubs and Clink Street went a lot later. It went till ten midday, and it was a much bigger space. When uh, did you wrap up typically? At uh, five. Okay. Yeah. So people used to uh, either go there, or people who didn't get into the club because it was it was uh, you know full to capacity would would go to Clink Street and other mm. you know that 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 area became a hub and Southwark Street at the time was an industrial area. It was a rundown part of London, and now today look at it, you know it's a you know a, a, a gleaming metropolis of like you know of of the south bank of london
0: i'm interested to know how it kind of how the fire spread because this is before the internet and so how are all these people finding out about this? Was it purely word of mouth or were you being very clever about flyering or was there a radio show that was a, how did people kind of, how did the community form? Do you have right. a sense of how that happened?
3: Uh, through pirate radio. That was a strong, um, um, underpinning platform that that promoted the scene mm. itself and the music and the outlet for the music so a lot more shows had emerged on pirate radio including my own I'd gone from like as I said a graveyard shift to a Friday afternoon shift so I'd made it basically and um, and uh, f- flyers around London you know it was a very word of mouth thing but then you know that's how it built and uh, later in 88 uh, the newspapers picked up on it the tabloids and First they were supportive of it and, you know, kind of then they started scandalising it. That, that was more late 88 and into 89. But that uh, that actually f- uh, increased the uh, interest in the scene mm-hmm. and the, the naughtiness of it. And we all want a part of this, you know. People would be at work on Monday morning and their mates have been out, like, raving all weekend. And they'd say, <laughs> well, well, I haven't been to sleep. I've just started coming to work. <laughs> and they'd be reading about it, you know, in the tea break or whatever you know the lunch break well where where can we go like, let's let's all do it so like you know it just like create this mass wave of like sensationalism and hysteria and people wanted a part of it and the, you know the, the tabloids actually help help build the rave scene <laughs> they so, really you know they yeah, really absolutely. kind of without you know and kill it eventually. Perhaps. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah, but um, you know, it, ev- everything comes to an end at yes. some point. But it was great while it lasted. But the actual rave scene, I didn't really uh, participate in a great deal. You know, I mm. was happy with my club, and that was it. You know, I, I, as I said earlier, I found my dream, and that was it. And that was that was I didn't. You know, I got offered f- f- a lot of money to play on huge raves. And it weren't about the money for me. It was just like, I don't want the money. I, You know, I'm really happy where I am here. And this is fulfilling for, to me enough. I'm not just doing this for money. This is about my years of, like, trying to be a DJ and then having a crowd to play for and keeping that crowd with me, and which I did for about... Yeah, I'm still friends with a lot of those people today, but like two or three years, that crowd stayed very tight with me as a DJ and with the club. Well, longer than that, into Pure Sexy and Glam at the Milk Bar, a lot of those people used to go to Mm Shoe. So that crowd stayed very long for ten years because of my thinking and my approach to the scene as well. Yeah, I didn't want to go off and just take the cash and come out of a rave with a bag load of cash and, you know, kind of you know get paid like you know thousands of pounds for doing that at the time that came that came later getting paid you know paid really really good money in the 90s with the whole super club thing mm. that's when it you know that that was a continuation of the rave scene mm. so what was the record we're in
0: we're in 88 it's yeah. all
3: exploded. yeah
0: what is the what is the tune that that soundtracked it for you at that point what's the tune that you want to sort of uh to to highlight from that period
3: i think the one that really uh captures the spirit of shoom um and Particularly from my own, like uh, you know, kind of memories of DJing there, um, I'd go into a trance to this piece of music, which is the Night Riders. Let the music take you to the top, and that's exactly what it did to millions of us, and continues to do so today.
2: Trailblazers. <laughs>
0: So it's 1988. It's all gone off for you. You are um, Danny Rampling on Friday afternoon on Kiss. Uh, you are the, the the pivot of you know the the coolest and most exclusive and the club that everybody wants to go to in London. So um, round about this time or not shortly after that um, you two guys uh, dovetailed; your lives kind of um, came together in some way, didn't it? Yes,
1: it did. So, the, I was aware of of what Danny was doing. I'd been listening to him on Kiss, and aware of the 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 momentum and, and buzz and everything that that Danny was creating. I wish I could claim that I was that I, that I was there at Shum, but I wasn't. I, I I didn't go, and I don't know why, but. I just you couldn't go to
0: everything, and probably because everyone told you you couldn't get it, you just yeah. can't get in. You'd <laughs> yeah. be queuing for hours. It's, like, it's, it's awful. This <laughs> would have been most welcome. Yeah. So, so no,
1: that was Danny mentioned. He didn't make it to Paradise Ground. I didn't yeah. make it to Shim. Yeah, um, but I did make it to Ibiza in the summer of '88. Kind of inspired by uh, a lot of what um, Danny and, uh, and and the other guys had been had been doing. So I. Yeah, I'd been to I, Ibiza briefly in 86 and then I chose to spend the summer of 88 in uh, in Ibiza um, and I just felt that was, was where I needed to be. But I think what you're referring to in terms of the dovetailing, our paths hadn't crossed at that point. Our paths crossed, I think, f- properly for the first time where I went to see you DJ in Windsor in uh, some kind of... What it, it, studio Valbon? Yes,
3: yeah. was, Is that Maidenhead? De- yeah, Maidenhead. Maidenhead, sorry. Ten, studio Valbon. Yes, yeah. it was
1: there, and it was I think it was like a Sunday afternoon yeah. into evening
3: type session. Promoted by Tommy Mac. That's right. Yeah. What, yeah. Uh, so that was, this, was this a carry on?
0: Was this one of those ones where everyone's been at a place like that, and they it want to carry
3: on? I think it was for a lot of people. Yeah. So, well, so certainly was. So I you
0: know I was
1: aware you know the the buzz and Danny was doing all this stuff and and uh, so I I went down there on a on a Sunday afternoon with a, a got a lift with a, a couple of sort of journalists that i knew a couple of nme journalists actually jack baron and helen mead
3: oh right okay yeah.
1: yeah and uh and so we come down come to the club and i'm hanging out and everything's great and uh and then i hear this record come on and i and i by this point in my career i was uh doing club promotions and R for a label called city beat which was a sort of Fairly eclectic dance, uh, sort of bass label. And I heard Danny play this record, and I'm like, oh man, everything exploded. And I thought, oh, I've got to find out what this is. So I go sprinting over, uh, <laughs> sprinting over to the, to the DJ, you know, and, and peer, start peering over the, you know, the deck, seek to try and find out what this record is. And it's a white label, and Danny has inscribed, fuck off nosy, <laughs> on, the, uh, on the white label. That's uh, a true that story. needs to be
0: put onto a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So and I'm like, oh, what? And, uh, and, uh, and it, it became clear I wasn't going to, you know, <laughs> sort of easily find out because I because th- you were one of only I think three or four people who had that, that well,
3: I, this particular record at the time. I went to Italy and bought a lot of music and I went on this trip to Italy for a week just to buy music and found all these great like Italian records at the time, these Italo house records. Mm. And um, that was one of them. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm not just going to come back and let everyone know what it is. Let's like, let's play it, let's cover it up, and let's build a buzz on it. So actually, I was doing the artist a favour and the record label because it created, like, at the time, it, like the Northern Soul scene, it, it yes. created an allure, allure around a mystery around the records, and people wanted it. Yeah. And so what
1: I had to do on on Monday. So this was Sunday. I'd come home. Uh, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what this record was, but. It'd no break, Shazam, no Shazam, <laughs> yeah. whatever. So then I phone up tracks, records, uh, Richard and Craig, who had their little, their little store tracks, and I start singing the record down the phone to them, <laughs> <laughs> and I go, you know, and uh, and must either Richard or Craig said, yeah, that's that's Numero Uno by Starlight, but there's only like three people that, that have got that in the UK. I'm like, oh god, so so it was impossible to hit, to kind of hit, you know, like, like how can I. I hear it and then goes, Well, Danny's got uh, Danny Rampling. Obviously, yeah, he's playing it. Trevor Fung has got it, and maybe one other person possibly. So, we knew Trevor Fung. Um, so, uh, Tim, my boss at City Beat, we we phone up Trevor Fung and say, <laughs> We've uh, Nick, you know, uh, Tim calls him up and goes, Nick heard this record in a club on Sunday, says it's really good, but we can't hear it anywhere. And but we're told that that you've got a copy of it. Is it possible? Could you? Can we hear it somehow? So Trevor brings his copy of Starlight Numero Uno down to the the City Beat office, plays it in front of me and and then my boss at the time, Tim. Tim's like, yeah, that is good, isn't it? And then we contact the Italian label Disco Magic and arrange to licence the record for... £2,000 advance, what have you. Um, and uh, and then that became the first hit record that I signed, wow. giving, giving me one of the highest moments in my life ever, which was um, when we released the record, it went in at, like, number 39 in the charts, and records sort of climbed up. Yeah. You know. And I remember listening to the radio on the, on the Sunday, and I didn't know what the final chart position was and the, the, the DJ kept going no, and in at 29 it's this and in at 21 it's that and I started and I, th- I thought we had a really hot record but he got up to about number sort of 20 still hadn't played it and, and I then started to get really depressed I'm like oh my god how can we have fucked it up it must have dropped out of the charts how can that happen it was like the hottest record it's not in the top 40 anymore and then it was like and the highest climber this week from 39 to 17 or 16 or whatever Starlight numero Uno. and I Absolutely lost my Jump mind. Joy. I literally wow. was <laughs> cartwheeling through the hall, just just going, wah, wah, you know,
3: truly. What a great feeling!
1: Oh, it was it was an incredible buzz. So you know, I was just like, wow, I've signed a hit record, and it's just like the hottest record in the chart this week. And so that was my one of my dreams coming true that yeah. I'd had as a Brilliant. as a child, a little bit like your you know yeah. dream of. DJing and 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 uh, being
3: on the radio and all that. That was that was the one that did it. And Phew. Daniele Davoli, who yes. uh, produced Black Box, he was behind that record as well. Yeah, same, of course, same we, team. It went as, to number one, didn't it?
1: No, Starlight in No, not that. No, Black Box was number one for sort of six did weeks. Nibiruna not get no, to number
3: No, we got to uh, top ten. Yeah. Top ten record, but no, it wasn't. But it sold a hundred thousand copies it, because you gave me a gold disc for that record. Yeah. That was, <laughs> that was, I think that was the first gold disc that I'd ever, ever received, and, and I was richly like, deserved. "Wow, I'm going to put this on the wall." It's like, I was very proud, and I, it's still on my wall today. Yeah, well, another brilliant. gold, other gold disc. You know, it was yeah. a trophy of recognition and, yes. and thanks for this support, breaking and supporting this record. Yeah. Well, like, wow! Look, I've got a gold disc. I was like so proud of it. Yeah, no, yeah. it's lovely. It's Love lovely one. when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: So, well, let's enjoy that. And you've got a picture now, uh, Nick cartwheeling. Down
2: <laughs> Trailblazers, Danny Rampling.
0: And uh, and that's the that's the second time that we've had Daniele Davoli, lovely man, mentioned on this show because of yes. course Mike Pickering was, uh, yes. was was heavily involved with uh, with that lovely Italian man. Yeah. So um, we've we've talked about Nick how how you when your life dovetailed with Danny's, uh. Uh, mine dovetailed with Danny's a lot later. All oh, right. Uh, in the mid 90s well a little bit later in the mid nineties I was at Radio One right uh, doing um, I was the jingle dude I did all of the the, okay. the promos and the trailers and all of the <laughs> And, and to the identity of the station, yeah, and uh, and um, the the then boss drafted in wanted to of shake up the, the, the kind yeah. of DJ, reflect DJ culture a bit more, yes. And uh, he he brought in Tim Westwood, yeah, and um and he brought in uh, amongst others Danny Rampling. Mm. To, to and, and I remember you know what should we call the show? And I remember I remember coming in <laughs> from my first meeting with you and just saying you know do you want to call it Danny Rampling or you know do you want to call it something else? Do you want to call it Shoom or what, do, what you, do you want to call?
1: You, you t- Two were discussing what your radio
0: one show yeah, be called. Yeah, because yeah. That, that was my job was was That's the identity right. of the station. So I I would huh. not just make jingles, but I would like I would make like beds for them for people to talk over and yeah. stuff. So, so often the first time a record might get played on Radio One in the mid nineties was on a a bed that I'd made for a DJ. Okay, or or, or you know, and, and certainly I would ask um someone like Danny what he wanted to call the show, and I remember him saying. I want to call it the love groove dance party.
3: That's and, right, and and, and and so and yeah, just and brought back some memories, some strong memories. Here. Yeah, and it so was very encouraging. Um, you know, coming into the BBC, it was like a bit daunting. I have to say, well, well, I guess it must have you. been Imagine for you. Yeah. yeah,
0: I'd been there for a, maybe a year or yeah. something like that. So I sort of got got my foot under the door a bit. So yeah, so how? Yeah, so what memories are you having of that? What what memories am I evoking by saying this? then? Well, it
3: was yeah, it was all. Very quick, m- moving from KISS to Radio 1 in a matter of weeks, and you know, coming from speaking to London, then to the whole country, it was, you know, a big step mm. forward, exciting step forward. But you know, you're, you, you know, how the building looked at the time, you know, all that history in Broadcasting House. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, getting to that stage of radio from starting from Pirate Radio late at night, getting into the, you know, the Tower of Power, BBC Radio One, but you made me feel very welcome there. And so did John Peel when I met him, um, you know, early on, um, in that building. But, um, it was quite an imposing setup as well. The first show was, uh, you'd have to walk under this tunnel across, uh, oh, yeah. one, uh, Clipstone Street, I believe it was, into Broadcasting House, and the first show came out of this huge um, radio broadcast studio under the through the tunnel. And yes, it was, right, uh, yeah, and it, you know the uh, the equipment was very Radio 1. Mm. Uh, the, the faders were reversed.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And yeah. Then, really and old BBC a... desks and stuff that we Yeah, and I don't,
3: uh, the, if, if I remember right, there wasn't Technique's uh, 1,200 uh, turntables in the studio on the first show, so we winged it, I think. That's what happened. Yeah. But uh, after that show, that was all adjusted, and then we got a mixer, proper mixer in there, DJ mixer and Technique's 1,200. But, yeah, um, actually getting onto Radio 1, and then... Um, Shortly after they launched his billboard campaign, and you know I was going to Leicester one night, and it's like I, I didn't even know that this billboard was going to be there. Oh yeah, someone's going to tip me off. I just looked out the window, and there's a picture of me sitting in the studio saying, I, "I'm a uh, I'm a dance music DJ or something along those lines, not a chat show host." I mean, thought, that's right.
0: Yes, I was on that it campaign was like, as well. Good grief. <laughs> it was it, That was Radio One As It Is mm. campaign where they mm. they sort of put a glass window into the whole place, and yeah. they, they wanted to not just have. The DJs, the the famous DJs that were there. Some of the producers, yeah, they wanted producers and stuff like that. So, so I can't. I've got it. I have somewhere at home. I've got it. Was it was. I think I was on there with Joe, like Joe Wiley was on one half and then I was on the other half. We were sort of like, it it was a kind of a bantery sort of thing. And I I remember that feeling of, I was coming down, I was coming back from the, uh, down the M4 and seeing myself on this 48 sheet poster on the M4, which was quite a bizarre thing for a producer. Being being the only, yeah,
1: being the only person in the room who's never had his face plastered on a 48 sheet poster. Tell me then, Danny, how did that feel? Because now you're, you're becoming kind of famous, right? You're becoming, and you're, you're, pool as a as a DJ, you know, you've yeah. been used to having your crowd that's loyally followed you within London, yeah. and a bit of Maidenhead, whatever you, and now I'm presuming by this point have you, are you on the circuit of, of are you
3: doing Cream? Yes, I was already on that circuit. Gate Crasher, yeah. whatever. Yeah, but it, 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 but it platformed me to a much wider audi- audience and internationally. But yeah, the, you know the first show—it was like you know walking out at Wembley to play the Cup Final. That's—I uh, haven't played the Cup Final, but it must be along those lines. Your you know, equivalent, it's like, yeah, uh, exactly. Of, <laughs> thereof, right? Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of support there, and there's you know the producers and you know kind of the uh, technical staff, and you know coming from Kiss, there'd just be you and a producer, and everything mm. was there in a small studio. Just a little bit like this, and yeah. you'd get on with it, and that was it for a few years at Kiss. And be, be you know, the audience in London, it was just London and a bit of the southeast. It was like, you know, speaking to just a family, really, as such. A small, you know, it, it felt a lot smaller, but then Radio One, it was like, you know. There's millions of listeners out here potentially, yes, so we're big, not going to get this wrong. It's a big sign. But uh, yeah, I stepped up and walked through the tunnel and the the hallowed tunnel of the BBC yeah, and yeah, got into the studio and everything was like cool. And uh, the station controller came in and wished me well, and it was like the first show on Radio One. That was on a Saturday evening. I think it was a. It was quite a warm day as well. And then the first track I played was uh, Barbara Tucker. I get lifted.
2: Trailblazers, Danny Rampling.
0: Happy days. Um, so, so there's the there's the first track that uh, ever got played on the uh, now legendary Love Groove dance party at Radio One, presented by Mr. Danny Rampling, with jingle supplied by Yours Truly. Right. Um, so, um, so Danny, the the question that we it's been wonderful uh, talking to you and it catching has. up with you and and um, getting you know the soundtrack to your to your life. So the question that we ask everybody. Um, that we talked to as the last one, is that you've got to imagine that, that aliens have landed yeah. and that they, they, for some reason, w- want to destroy the Earth as, you know, aliens. they, oh, they pesky, pesky aliens. Um, so you have one chance, one record to give to them that will persuade them that um, mankind is worth saving. Hmm. Um, so
3: what would that record mean? Mankind is worth saving. Yeah. We're under attack. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, well,
0: <laughs> well, we might not be under attack. It, it could be more of a scenario of like they're thinking about it. Like, sure, Imagine sure. they're surveying this uh, um, this part of the cosmos uh, for, for some kind of intergalactic superhighway and they've got to blow up a few planets to make
3: room for it. So, or the human races attack them. So, <laughs> Clear off your aliens. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> so, okay, if we're under, if we're under
3: threat... If it's you know, this massive threat, then it would have to be, um, Wagner, um, the road, Ride of the Valkyries. It's, you know, mm. apocalypse now, bridge too far, military marching music. Go get them! That, that would surely make the aliens destroy the world, wouldn't it? Well, I think, <laughs> or, it, I think it would, it it would it make way. them flee. It would be
0: an incredible soundtrack to the aliens destroying the world. We're that's- under attack. It's a collective effort, and that's the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so um, you've you've chosen a classical piece of music, yeah. and and through through your whole life, we we haven't, um, you know, where, did classical music figure, or or were you like me? Did
3: you pick this because of um, apocalypse now? Um, well, I I picked that through military con- uh, connections. I was um, I was in the Territorial Army in the early eighties. So. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, and that's that's another part of my life. And uh, yeah, I think that th- I love classical music as well. And the fact that, uh, that that particular piece of music, it's from an opera. It's a great piece of music. It's got lots of energy again, and it's it's very powerful. Uh, it's been used in some great films as well, like Apocalypse Now and a Bridge Too Far. And, um, it's a battle march, and if we're under attack, then we we can't run away. We're going to have to go into battle with these like these alien forces. But how, God knows how that would happen. The way the world is at the moment, it's a pretty divided place we live in. So collectively, yes, in an ideal world, a collective, a global collective, and the world is under threat. That would be the uh, the theme tune. Yeah,
0: I can. This is a this is a tune that could that can that would rally anyone from any country. Yeah. Um, Danny Rampling, a true trailblazer. We can see your, your, your trail through the sky that so many have followed. Thank you so much for coming on the on, on the show.
3: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dan.
2: Trailblazers. originals trailblazers
0: thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback, so if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter, at edytm. That's
1: E-double-D-Y-T-M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawkes, N-I-C-K-H-A-L-K-E-S on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from
0: our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app
1: for free and search for Trailblazers
0: or head to the dance section where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance.
2: Trailblazers.
0: Thanks so much to Danny Rampling for joining us.
1: Next time on Trailblazers, the legendary Daniel Miller.
2: Deezer
1: Originals.